Tell me about your husband, Mrs. Tasca. Harry? I mean, he's a sales rep for a computer company. My husband is a good man. Do you still love your husband? Yes, I love him. I've always loved him. Welcome to Now Playing Podcast Review of True Lies. She wants a little adventure, so I'm going to give her one. Hosted by Brock. <laughs> I'm starting to like this guy. <laughs> Stuart. You see, you're very good. <laughs> you're a natural at this. And Arnie. What a team. But be warned, this episode will contain detailed plot spoilers and strong language. If you do not complete your mission, the deal is off. We hope you enjoy the show. Check, 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 check. It's Doc Radio, you're on the air. Today we're talking about True Lies, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger, Jamie Lee Curtis, Tom Arnold, Bill Paxton, Art Malik, Tia Carrera, directed by James Cameron. This is Brock, co-host of Now Playing. And Stuart. And this is the Now Playing co-host who's as clean as a preacher's sheets, and I'm not going to say how clean those are, Arnie. Hmm. <laughs> Yeah, we don't want to go into anything about preachers, or that's a whole different rabbit hole we maybe should, should avoid. This is True Lies. We had kind of hinted this last week that Arnold was spoofing on his persona and spoofing on things with the last action hero. This week, it seems that all signs point to he's doing a little bit more of that sort of thing, but at the same time doing a traditional action movie with True Lies. Only this time it was a hit. Less action hero didn't clear a hundred million. And this one, it's a blockbuster, but what's strange to me about this one is it always feels small on their resumes. It was the third biggest movie of 1994, but it came out the same summer as Forrest Gump and Lion King. So I think those two films just made it look small. And I, as a giant James Cameron fan, only saw this movie once. This wasn't a big one for me. I absolutely adored Aliens, The Abyss, and T2. But Arnie, you were there when uh, the only time that I've ever watched this movie before this week in summer 1994, you and I went to a matinee. I love my memories of this because... I wasn't anxious to see this movie, to be honest. I was going to see it because it was Arnold. I don't think I would have gone opening weekend, but Stuart was in town, and because of James Cameron, I know you were really hyped up, but I was really curious because this was, at the time, the most expensive movie of all time. It had cost more than Terminator and everything. And what I had a flashback to watching this movie is the number of times Stuart and I leaned over to each other during the movie and whispered, where'd the money go? You know, you think of Terminator 2 was the most expensive film of all time. And you walked out of that movie going, wow, that T-1000, wow, all those effects. And Stuart and I were watching this movie like, who snorted the millions? <laughs> And it gets even weirder when you realize that this is a remake of a French film. That this is actually, its origin is in something small and quaint and not a blockbuster. But yeah, they took a little film and turned it into our gargantuan thing. And I saw it in the theater in the summer of 94 with my mother. As we talked about on the James Bond series, James Bond movies were something my mother and I would go see. And since we were in the middle of the drought between Timothy Dalton and Pierce Brosnan, when yeah. we had heard this is kind of an homage to or even a spoof of James Bond movies, my mother suggested that we go see it. 
And my mother, seeing an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, I'm like, yeah, I got to go to that. So we went and we had a great time watching this movie. You can definitely see some James Bond influences here. But I have fond memories of the movie and really enjoying it for the most part. But yeah, this one is something that I, I haven't felt the need to go back to or return to. One or two times was enough. I never felt the need to go back to it. My wife, on the other hand, feels very strongly differently about that than I do. When she found out that we were reviewing it, I believe her direct quote was, oh, you're talking about the greatest action movie of the 1990s? And whenever this is on TV, all activity comes to a halt in our house. Now, it's hard to find on video. It's not out on Blu-ray. It's not out on streaming. So when it comes on primarily FX Network, when she's literally old school channel flipping and this is on, she will watch this movie beginning to end. Now, I'm usually busy podcasting or doing something else. So I've seen the second half of this movie more times than I can count. I can't recall the last time I've seen it opening credits to closing credits, but it is on in our house a lot. And I have a little story connected to it that. Yes, another way that this movie feels small is, even though it was the third biggest movie of 1994, you can barely find it now. I bought a, well, I thought it was an English language Blu-ray, <laughs> but it ended up being in Spanish. But because the movie was made in English, I could understand it, but maybe not the menu. It has since popped up on Hulu, just in case listeners are wondering. But by and large, this movie is really hard to find because... James Cameron doesn't have time for it. I worked at Fox. I think I've talked about this before. My job was lowly. I was responsible for getting old movies cut down to syndicated form. And when they had powerful directors that had made the movies, they had to sign a clearance. They had to say, yep, you can show my movie in this fashion. And I spent three years calling James Cameron begging him to please sign the paperwork to let us run True Lies. And every time I did, I would get a very disgruntled assistant who would be like, you know he's under the ocean, right? You know he's <laughs> making Avatar 2, right? You know he has better things to do than mess around with this, well, at that time it was a 20-year-old movie. We'll get back to you. But they never did. And consequently, because James Cameron cares so much about the quality of things, he's not going to let an inferior version out there. He wants to get to this. I'm wondering, now that we finally have Avatar 2 coming out this Christmas, maybe just maybe he can find the three hours to look <laughs> at the cut and say, all right, let my people see this film. But yeah, I'll agree with you. This is, to me, a forgotten one on Arnold's resume, even. And it's strange. It just feels like this movie has no staying power. Of course, I feel the same thing about Avatar, and we're going to be reviewing a sequel to that in a few months. But that movie is epic, though. I mean, even if you don't like Avatar or you've forgotten about Avatar, I saw that movie once. But I do think big, right? The visual spectacle. And I think what's weird about this one on the resume of Arnold or James Cameron is how old-fashioned it is. It doesn't have the hopped-up adrenaline I associate with either of those two. It does feel like a Roger Moore Bond movie. But yeah, if you look at Arnold Schwarzenegger's career, his last significant blockbuster movie 
you look at the rest of it, everything that came after this, and then, of course, he was the governor for a while. But any movie Arnold did afterward wasn't close to the success of this one. I wouldn't rule out foreign box office. Some of these things we'll call bombs were rescued by European and Asian audiences. But yes, I agree. The last movie in America where his name was above the title and seemed to have a major draw and seemed to have goodwill is this film. And I say that in part not knowing what comes next. I've only seen one of the other films we're calling his action movie cycle. And it's not a good one, although I love it. (laughs) But yeah, True Lies is the last respectable thing that I can think of on his resume, depending on how you feel about those Terminator sequels. Yeah, but even there, he just seems like it's, we'll pay him, we'll get him there. You know, Batman and Robin, we'll pay you to get him there. Yes, that was a gigantic movie. That wasn't just him. That was a Batman movie. The other sequels were Terminator sequels versus G2, which was a Schwarzenegger movie that created the Terminator franchise, that second Terminator movie really created something to go on. I just don't remember Nick Stahl having top billing of T3. (laughs) I mean, I think we know what you mean. Terminator will always be his franchise, but we think of those first two, you know. So whatever four, five, six means to you, it's the first two that he loomed the largest. First of all, did either of you know this was a remake? If I ever knew that, it slipped my mind until this week. And did either of you see La Totale? I knew it was a remake only when I was researching this movie and found out some of how it was made that Arnold Schwarzenegger saw this French film and went to James Cameron, who was preparing a different film for Arnold, and watched this and decided, okay, we'll do this film instead. But that's as much as I know about it. And no, I can't say that it made me really feel like I needed to rush out to see the French version. I did not see the French version and... I was reminded of it because I did my research afterwards because the screenplay based on a screenplay in the credits. That's Mm -hmm. what I was reminded of it. So, no, did you see it? Is it worthwhile seeing? Well, here's the thing. The only thing I could find, it's also not easy to find here in America. I don't even know that it got a true American release. But what I could find was not translated. So I was kind of just spot checking. I couldn't really check the quality of the movie. I just wanted to see how many scenes looked like the James Cameron one. And I would say a lot. I would say that the original largely follows what the remake shows us, but without the bigness of either the comedy or the action. I mean, obviously, they don't have Harrier Jets in the little French film. But even when the Jamie Lee Curtis character goes to do the seduction thing, the way that Jamie Lee Curtis is going to play that dance is not... How, in fact, it ends up being kind of a rape scene that's uncomfortable, and if it was funny, it was only funny to the French. I think that you would be surprised at how muted that movie is. It might have played in France, but I don't think that it would have broad appeal. And you do wonder why Arnold would see Blockbuster in it, but I guess it does have some of the same qualities that Last Action Hero did, and the idea that it plays off his tough guy image and his family man it image it allows him to be both at a time where he really was trying to change his reputation into something that the republican party wasn't embarrassed with and i guess you know this was an expensive movie i do think that part of the reason why we don't think of it as much as there were not sequels there were not other ones i guess it was profitable but not to the extent that it absolutely screamed make another one you know i think it cost 120 and grossed 150 And then you add the international and that's a hit, but, you know, not T2. They were going to make a sequel. We'll talk about it after. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think other things happened as well. And I'm just going to preface where I think you're going with that. It should be said in 1994, there had been an attack on the World Trade Center. People forget that first car bombing one. Not as memorable as the second one. But yes, terrorism was starting to be redefined. We were moving away from Cold War stereotypes and moving into Middle Eastern stereotypes. And this movie did take a little bit of heat for the lightness in which it treated terrorism and Middle Eastern politics. I remember some level of protest. But I, again, this movie is so light, it's hard to imagine anyone getting worked up about politics in this. <laughs> You're calling it light. There's a couple of themes in this movie that are a little disturbing if you think about them for a minute. But I think we should get a plot summary so we can talk about the movie. Arnie? Arnold Schwarzenegger plays Harry Trasker, an international man of mystery, a spy working for the secret United States Omega counterterrorism program. Harry's secret identity is so deep that even his wife Helen, played by Jamie Lee Curtis, and daughter Dana, played by Eliza Dushku, don't know Harry's true profession. They believe this six-foot, two-inch, muscle-bound man is a computer salesman who often has to take business trips. Harry's cover may be a little too good, as Helen, a paralegal, has become the stereotypical bored housewife. Ironically, she starts to get involved with a man the exact opposite of Harry, a used car salesman who lies to Helen and tells her he's a spy. The car salesman's name is Simon, played by Bill Paxton. Harry and his partner Gibb, played by Tom Arnold, use the Omega resources to kidnap Helen and Simon. Harry and Gibb hide their identities and pretend Simon is an international terrorist to put the fear of God in the two. Harry gets the idea to spice up his marriage out of this. Helen is given a mission in order to clear herself of these fake charges. She thinks she is to portray a prostitute and put a bug in a spy's hotel room, and in actuality, she's going to a hotel room to meet Harry. Before Helen can figure out what's going on, though, she and Harry are kidnapped by the terrorist group, the Crimson Jihad. Led by Abu Aziz, played by Art Malik, the Crimson Jihad have several nuclear warheads. They plan on detonating them unless the U.S. removes all military presence from the Persian Gulf. They took Harry as a prisoner as Harry was investigating the Crimson Jihad. Helen was just a bonus. And through this kidnapping, Helen learns the truth that her husband is a spy. Harry arms up and kills many of the terrorists, but in the chaos, Helen is taken by Aziz. The U.S. military shows up, thanks to Gibb tracking his partner's location, and Helen is rescued in a dramatic helicopter chase. But Aziz escapes with another warhead. And to be sure Harry doesn't interfere, Aziz has kidnapped Harry's daughter, Dana. Harry takes a Harrier jet to downtown Miami to rescue his daughter. The girl has to jump on the fuselage of the flying aircraft, but she's saved and Aziz is killed in the fight. The Crimson Jihad defeated, we jump forward a year to see Harry and Gibb on another mission. But this time Harry is accompanied by Helen, who has also become a spy, and their marriage seems happier than ever as credits roll. And if you didn't know the setup, I mean, I do think that on the poster, the image James Cameron was so proud of, it's a grenade with a wedding ring for a pull. The marriage politics was front and center, I think, in the advertising. But assuming you just thought you were getting another Arnold shoot 'em up I think this opening sets you up for that. You would just think that he is trying to step in for Timothy Dalton and B-007 as he blows in here at this Switzerland chateau. Yeah, I mean, obviously the Goldfinger reference with the wetsuit is 
right front and center. If you've seen Goldfinger, you know this is right out of James Bond. The way he sneaks around. The only difference, of course, from a James Bond movie to a more modern spy movie is the guy in the van. Bond doesn't have a guy in the van. Bond just goes out and does stuff. Even Spider-Man has a guy in the chair now, right? But he has a guy, two guys in the van outside helping him out and doing the whole thing. What I loved about this opening scene was Schwarzenegger has a chance to be suave and debonair like a James Bond character. And I don't recall seeing him ever do that before. And he seems so fluid. He was doing it so easily. I was enjoying it the entire time. I'll agree. You know, the man has come a long way since his pumping iron days. When he was just a bodybuilder, his time on the red carpet, his time being with the upper crust, you picture this is how he is in real life when he's at a soiree and not something we've seen before. But you guys say James Bond. I feel like early on, this movie is winking at us. This is definitely an action comedy the whole way through. Yes, Bond has his one-liners, but I feel Bond takes himself more seriously than this movie takes itself. Mm, that's why I said Roger Moore. I feel like it's 70s Bond. Because it has that goofier, very few of the Roger Moore era, would you call, grounded. We forget this in the Daniel Craig, even the Timothy Dalton movies, that, yeah, Bond could be sour and butch. But uh, go back to The Spy Who Loved Me, and this has a lot of that. For sure. How about the tango, too? He does a really great job doing the tango, too, which was very impressive. Tia Carrera is in here. I thought she was perfectly cast as this kind of bombshell who would turn your head and who's going to come back be like, I wouldn't want to say the femme fatale, but definitely a villainess. And I, I thought that was a, a smart piece of casting, considering who she was at Hollywood at the time. Every so often I see one of these where I feel like the actor must feel they've won some kind of lottery, where they are taken out of the level of movie they normally do, and are brought into a huge freaking film, and they only get to do it once, and then they have to go back and do, like, Wayne's World 2 and things. I think Wayne's World 2 was right before this, but she was fun in Wayne's World, but to see her here as this super sexy art dealer slash arms smuggler. She plays the role so well, and yet I never in my wildest dreams would have thought Tia Carrera, that's the one you need for this part. Right, she had been so objectified in the Wayne's World movie, you didn't think of her as an actress. But more importantly, it's what she's doing for Arnold. I think you guys are right to cite that he doesn't usually get to do the tango. They don't usually give women... To Arnold, frankly, if you think about it, you know, Predator and Terminator, he, he's kind of sexless. He doesn't really get to have romantic chemistry. I don't know about those comedies. I didn't really watch them, but maybe the, it's there. But I, I do think for me, seeing him with her and having some genuine sparks. Yeah, I, she probably is the villainess, but you could also say that maybe she's just going to be the Bond girl. But Arnie, where I thought you were going with that, with, with the actor who hit the lottery and never did anything like this after this, uh, was Tom Arnold. <laughs> but when then you said Tia Carrera, I was like, oh, okay, we will talk about that again in a second, I guess, because Tom Arnold, <laughs> never seen him do anything like this since. And I came out of this the first time talking to my mother saying, I think he's going to get an Academy Award nomination for Best Supporting Actor because he just blows you out of the water. He's part of the reason I didn't even want to see this film. For people who don't remember, and that's everyone, <laughs> Tom Arnold at this point was basically known as Roseanne Barr's ex-husband. 
after they had gone on what I can only presume are allegedly drug-fueled binges, and the two of them had become nightmare divas on the set of Roseanne. As the show was plummeting, it should be said. He was the head writer of Roseanne for a good period of time, and he was an actor on the show. I think he played Sandra Bernhard's husband, if I remember right. They wound up in a Freddy movie at some point. It was really strange. Oh my god, that scene is so painful to watch of the two of them running up and freaking out over seeing a youth in Springwood. Yes, I really thought the worst of Tom Arnold, and... From what I read, Tom Arnold did so well in the auditions and got such a rapport with Arnold that Fox was like, we're not hiring him. And Cameron said that I'm going to another studio with this movie. And I did see Tom Arnold do stand up just a few years ago. He and Arnold remained close friends out of this to hear Tom Arnold say it. You know, the two of them hang out a lot. So he's really, really good here. Against every odd. If I, there were bet makers in Vegas, if, if he'd be good, I'd have bet it all and lost everything. And what I would say, a couple things, is one, that's usually a sign of a good director. If you're taking people like Tia Carrera and Tom Arnold that haven't really impressed you in other movies and showing that they have new sides. Hell, Arnold Schwarzenegger is giving, if not his best performance, at least his most nuanced. So I think that is to the credit of James Cameron that he's able to mold these people. But I also just, I'll give Tom Arnold some credit because there's nothing more delightful for me than to be completely surprised after I've written somebody off and they come back and say, no, I do have something, you know, like so often what, you know, someone can become famous for is so limiting. I mean, Woody Harrelson, I didn't think he was a good actor just because he played such a doofus on Cheers. You can get typecast and you can get dismissed in this way. And yeah, it, watching this movie makes you realize if Tom Arnold had made other choices, namely not gotten involved with drugs in Roseanne Barr, he might have been one of our <laughs> delightful comedic actors of the 90s. I don't know. I've seen McHale's Navy and The Stupids. I didn't mind McHale's Navy, but I had not seen The Stupids. But what's really good about his performance here, too, is... He doesn't get annoying. This is a great role. Like if you see someone like Aquafina as a recent example, sometimes she plays a similar role and she can get a little bit taxing after a while. Chris Tucker comes to mind as well. But here he actually has a couple of dramatic turns when he has to. And he plays those scenes just as well as he does. It should be said that to most of the time he's playing you know, the same note, just, you know, basic variations but he does it so well and he's not annoying so i just want to give credit where credit's due yeah and he comes out strong right here as the man in the van as he's gonna be called you know always talking through the speaker he's a way to narrate to the audience what's going on and telling arnold where he needs to go so he serves a narrative purpose as far as keeping the audience engaged in the plot and understanding what's going on but he's amusing while he does it I'll tweak what you guys are saying. I largely agree, but I would say he is annoying, but you find yourself laughing in spite of it. I find that many of his crass comments are not things I actually agree with, and yet his ability to goad and to be there. He also just, I think, got the role because he looks a lot like the guy in the French movie who seems to act in exactly the same way. This There was a, a similar character in La Totale that does most of what I can tell is the same service. He is the sideman that makes our hero better. And he, I think in an interesting note, after we have all this spectacular action at the Chateau, 
he's the one that reminds Arnold to put that ring back on. Arnold would have walked right back into his married, covered life and not had every accoutrement of his hairy tasker identity, which is computer salesman, I think. Yeah, it is. And it made me think, I know they're going to talk about that Gib, the Tom Arnold character, has several ex-wives himself, but it feels to me like this whole team is set up so Harry Trasker can keep undercover on missions and in real life. If it wasn't for Gib, Harry would screw up and go home without the wedding ring. And it's like this whole team is just there so that Harry can help have a personal life too. And I'm like, well, that's not really fair if only one out of every three Omega agents gets to have a personal life and two are assigned to make sure that personal life works out. Here's one thing about this movie that I, I get, maybe I'll call it a flaw. I'll have to think about it as we talk about the movie. Here's one curiosity I have I haven't been able to identify. We will see very much that the family that Harry has created wants more for their lives, that Helen, his mousy wife, would love to have this spy life herself. Does he want the comforts of a wife and kid? I couldn't read from Arnold's performance or any of these exchanges whether there was anything about this cover that he actually wanted. Because it's quite a surprise. I mean, up to this point, you're like, okay, he's James Bond. We know that James Bond doesn't have a wife and kid waiting for him. When he comes back to Washington, D.C. and walks into that house, you have to wonder why. Why did he do it? I never wondered why. It's just a setup of the movie, but I see your point exactly. Why would a guy like this want to have a humdrum average life is it just a cover to protect it because wouldn't you rather be with tia carrera than jamie lee curtis and apparently that was a problem on set arnold himself was against the casting of jamie lee curtis i don't exactly know why but he fought cameron a lot it was their biggest argument about whether or not he should be married to this actress. He came around on it. By the end, he's sharing top billing with her and he did not have to do that contractually. But he did realize James Cameron made the right choice there. But as far as the character motivations go, I think he just enjoys being a family man. Does he like it? And he is in love. I mean, you see him kiss his daughter on the head and try to be a connecting father. I think this is what he wants because it's certainly not necessary. This is not cover for him. He'd be probably much better off undercover if he were a James Bond with no attachments. This is a liability, as this movie is going to point out. Mm. And maybe that's Arnold's performance. It should be said, I'm not going to ding Arnold. Again, I'm thinking he's doing a pretty good job. But if you did cast this with somebody else, I do think that they would probably do more dramatic work. Even with the script as written, you could show more about how he feels about his married life. He comes home to it, and we definitely see the wife yearning to be heard, making passing comments about sleeping with the plumber to see if she can get a rise out of him. And he seems pretty checked out. If he didn't have high-tech gear in the living room, if Tom Arnold didn't come in and bring in the cigarette cam, he wouldn't even know that his daughter is stealing from him. And that never goes anywhere either, that the daughter is stealing. Actually, it does, and I thought it was pretty ham-fisted. She steals the terrorist's key off of the bomb later in the movie. And the reason they have her stealing in the beginning is to make that point later that she would do such a thing. 
So they are using this scene to set up later in the movie, and they're using this scene to basically the cue scene to set up the gadget. Yeah, but they'll never have to confront her. The movie I would go to as a comparative is The Last Boy Scout, where Bruce Willis has a daughter who's being really rude and everything at the beginning, and you see that the two characters are not connecting, and by the end of the movie, they've started to make a reconciliation, and the daughter has stopped doing some of her bad behaviors. And here, you never get the moment of the father saying, you stole money from me, and her apologizing for it. You just get... That they're going to become closer thanks to life or death circumstances we'll discuss at the end of the show. But there are scenes with Jamie Lee. There's a really quick insert shot where he calls home telling Jamie Lee that he's going to be late. And then she has one line. She went, see? So you can come in with the audience is privy to. They were having a conversation right before the phone rang about how dad is never around. And her behavior is a direct result of Arnold not being around in their relationship and Jamie Lee's behavior is a direct result. And Tom Arnold flat out calls it out later on in the movie that his behavior is causing all of these things to fall apart. And just not that it matters, she was stealing money from Tom Arnold's jacket, not Arnold's. Oh, for some reason, I care about that less. <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, I think all that I'm asking for is if they had been able to find one way at some point in the movie for Harry to talk about why he got married or to see why he comes home to this, it might just help me a little bit more and seeing this as an even power play and that he's missing out on something in the same way that his wife is missing out on something and the fantasy is for both of them to come together. And that's going to take quite a long time. I mean, part of the problem I have with this movie's structure is Jamie Lee Curtis isn't really going to be a part of the movie for the first half hour, 45 minutes. We get introduced to her, we get introduced to her situation, but for about a third of this movie, nearly half, you've got what could be a straight-up spy film. You've got a lot of research into this Crimson Jihad and a lot of the spy network and Charlton Heston as the Omega Man, I'm taking it. That's a pun because they're the Omega organization and he's the man there. Were you guys distracted by his eyebrows? Because he has the eye patch on. And his eyebrows are like hanging over it like a windowsill. And I just like, wasn't there a wardrobe or makeup or hair to say, hey, man, maybe you could trim that up for you a little bit, Jared Charlton? Uh, it makes him more, look more macho, right? <laughs> uh, Charlton Heston, I mean, he was associated with the NRA at this point. He is with the Republican Party in the same way that Arnold was identified with the Republican Party. So I don't know that it goes any deeper than that, but it feels like this is maybe the one guy that could be Arnold's boss. And he's displeased that what we saw in Switzerland to him is a failure. You guys didn't get enough. All that the band and the bands were able to identify is that money is being funneled to terrorists through the guy at the party, maybe through purchasing art with Tia Carrera, and she's the thing that they've got to investigate. Yeah, and the opening I went with as being a James Bond opening, right? Because we started on the mission and it ended, you know, with snowmobiles and explosions and an escape like that. So that I went with. But when this continues and we're still looking into Crips and Jihad and tracing this down, I feel both that too much time is spent on the villains and yet the villains are also very ill-defined and forgettable. 
what I feel is that it's not so important what the villains are doing. It's more interesting in that we first saw James Bond, then we found out James Bond was married, and now we realize that this is like indecent proposal. Is he going to cheat? Which way is he going to go? Like when he has to go back on his mission and flirt with this hot art dealer, how does he rectify coming home to Jamie Lee Curtis? To me, it's a relationship movie. It's a movie about families and infidelity. It's not an action movie at all. It's weird that I don't feel that it's big enough to be an action movie. For all of its spectacle, this movie's cast its aspirations, its themes are very small. There are some great action scenes in it, and the ending is non-stop action, right? There's one action scene after another. I do feel, especially this middle section, I always thought it was like two different movies. The section with them making Jamie Lee the mission was a whole different thing than the terrorist part. And then having both of those things come together at the end, this movie is like two and a half hours long, and it feels like two different movies that they melded together. So they have to have the time to set up everything. But theoretically speaking, you could have cut out this next action scene that we're going to talk about and gone straight to Jamie Lee. And they did. If you watch the French film, that's exactly... There is no bathroom shenanigans. La Total is only an hour 45 minutes. They added 40 minutes to make it true lies. What you're talking about, Brock, is a great action scene. I think it's amazingly shot and inventive. And I did have to rewind because it does seem to come a little bit out of nowhere. We get a little bit more flirting between Harry and Juno, the Tia Carrera character. And then Harry is being followed. He goes to a urinal and we get a great bathroom fight <laughs> with the water tanks everywhere and things. Sorry, bad boys, but the better bathroom fight is right here in Drew Lies. I think it's a great action scene. I enjoy watching it. I love seeing Schwarzenegger on a horse chasing a guy on a motorcycle, but I just can't help but think it doesn't need to be in this movie. And they did the best they could to hide the stuntmen, but I, I mean, on my 65-inch screen, I could totally see it wasn't Schwarzenegger in lots of different parts. I love the horse in the elevator. I love the horse won't make the jump after the guy did on the motorcycle. I think it's hysterical. It's an over-the-top action scene. How do you not enjoy he's on a horse, right? And it's really funny and inventive and silly. And at the same time, I'm like, get on with it. I get that. And I do believe, I honestly believe, because it's so obvious to spot the stunt double on home viewing, like there's that shot where the guy on the horse is riding into the fountain looking at the glass elevator, and it's so obviously not Arnold. I'm convinced that is the shot. That prevented James Cameron from signing the release. Like, he's going to go back and digitally fix that, so we'll never question that that isn't Arnold Schwarzenegger. Okay, Stuart, you don't have that job anymore. You don't have to keep going for this. You know, James isn't listening to this. Let it go, man. He's not signing that release. I'm sorry. Yeah, well, that's the shot. I feel like, for the most part, all the stunt work in this, all the bigness of it, is really fun to watch and largely feels photorealistic. Like, I don't feel like they faked a whole lot. But yeah, that guy on the horse was a stuntman, clearly. I mean, like, earlier in the movie, we didn't mention that he, like, puts the two dogs <laughs> together and bonks on the head. How they got the horse to not get spooked by the cameras and the cars and the motorcycles, no idea. There's a great moment here when Art Malik's terrorist, he pulls the driver off the motorcycle, like, while he's driving by. It's an amazing stunt for the guy in the motorcycle. It's remarkable. So I'm loving the filmmaking here. 
But it's amazing to me how this movie, even with this incredible action scene, how the movie seems to stand still while I'm entertained. I, I can't get past it because it's a whole different movie. Which some would compliment as the skill of the director being able to weave two things together. I will say I care far more about the marriage storyline than I ever do about Crimson Jihad. Yes. I agree completely. And that's what I'm saying is when it comes to the bad guys, some stuff that I feel is de-emphasized in exchange for the marriage story, which is the better of the two movies shoved into this movie. You know, I didn't see this movie with my mom, but when I rewatched it this week, I mentioned like, hey, do you want to watch it? I'm going to put it on. And she goes, oh, is that the one where Jamie Lee Curtis is dancing on the bed? Like the thing that you remember, maybe, you know, we've talked a lot about these supporting characters. We've always talking a lot about Arnold in the series, but I do feel like when they finally get to her, this is Jamie Lee Curtis's movie. I completely agree with you. She is the one that has the character arc. She has the hardest role in this movie. She has to play Dowdy, and she has to play Spy at the end. And she has to play that entire arc. She does the dancing. She does the thing with Bill Paxton in the trailer. All of these scenes, she has to play differently, whereas Arnold and Tom Arnold and the villains could play the same basic three or four notes. Jamie Lee Curtis is remarkably great in this movie, and I think her performance here is underappreciated. To Mrs. Curtis, I want to give an apology. Her entire career, I have counted her out. When this movie came out, I'm like, she's done. She's over with. The last thing I even heard about from her was a fish called Wanda. She was on TV. I think she had a sitcom. Anything But Love, and she did Blue Steel. Well, that was a bomb. Well, yes, I know she did Blue Steel. Like I said, the only thing of note... Yeah, she worked. She was the mother in My Girl 1 and 2. Like, that's a downward trajectory. Yeah, when you're playing the mother character, I thought she was miscast here. I thought she was past her prime. I failed to realize this is only, what, 11 years, 12 years after Trading Places? And she was so freaking hot in Trading Places. And she's still got all the goods here. She is perfectly cast. She is amazing in this I counted her out again when we were coming back to Halloween. I just constantly count out Jamie Lee, and I shouldn't do that because she has proven time and again that she can always stage a comeback even after doing incredibly bad movies. Yeah, and uh, again, this is another credit to James Cameron because he fought for this one hard. Arnold, again, was like, this is not who I want to work with. This is not right. Why do you think it's Jamie Lee? I I have to believe, Arnie, that you're right. Part of what his nervousness had to be the fact that she was in no way a box office draw in 1994. But James Cameron wasn't obviously casting on who are the biggest stars. He saw qualities in all these actors and says, I know how to use them. And if there's one thing I've noticed consistently about James Cameron movies is that he loves to see women seize the reins and become the big star in front of you. Think about the way that Ripley becomes super mom in Aliens, the transformation of Linda Hamilton from mousy waitress to, you know, She-Hulk in that second one. Mary Elizabeth Antonio comes back from the dead in The Abyss. He always champions women. If you notice, Lightstorm is his company. The icon that begins this movie after the Fox drum roll is Diana the Huntress. You know, he finds always great parts for women. This one's a little bit contentious because I think it starts out looking like she's a manipulated housewife. But I do believe, ultimately, both the character and Jamie Lee Curtis triumph 
in this story. I think Jamie Lee Curtis still calls this her favorite role and her favorite film. Even more mm-hmm. than Wanda. Interesting. That's great to yeah, hear. Yeah, and Halloween. So, yeah. So, at this point in the movie, Harry, Arnold Schwarzenegger's character, overhears his wife because he goes to smooth things over and goes to her work and overhears that she's going to meet a guy named Simon for lunch. And he follows her. And Simon is a used car salesman who's pretending to be a spy. This movie's secret weapon, Bill Paxton. Well, he's James Cameron's guy. Like, every movie that James Cameron does, Bill Paxton's in there somewhere. And they have this really fun scene of in the car and having Bill Paxton just chew up the screen for five minutes, nonstop talking. That was just a blast to see this guy just go on and on and on and on and on. And how Jamie Lee Curtis did character did not figure out this guy is full of shit blows my mind. Because <laughs> he's so obviously to me full of shit. Or have a second date with him. I mean, you guys are saying you love Bill Paxton here. He's almost too scummy, right? Like, he's so gross that I'm glad when he's not on the screen. You do judge this woman for believing his lies. And again, we'll understand her eventually when she has her mirror scene. But yes, when I see Simon... I don't get the attraction. Well, I believe it's the uh, repercussion of Harry not being home enough. Clearly, this woman needs attention because she's buying into this horse shit and this asshole. (laughs) Yeah, you know the moment you see him that he is full of shit. And the test drive that you talk about, Brock, was, again, you know, so much of acting is reacting and I love Bill Paxton's speech, but I have to love it because of how Arnold is actually reacting to all this bullshit that Simon is spewing. The moment I'll never forget, I was sitting in the theater and I just, my jaw dropped, is the moment where Arnold punches him in the face and kills him with that punch to the nose that sends the cartilage to the brain and he's dead. I'm just like, holy shit, you just killed the car salesman. And It's a little bit of a cheat that turns out to be just Arnold's fantasy. Here's one thing I totally forgot. This movie is R-rated. Like, I, because of its lightness, because of the things that I recall when I think about this movie, assumed it must have been PG-13. But it is actually, when you sit and, and watch this movie, it is hard R in some cases. The guy getting riddled with bullets in the bathroom is just one example of, like, yeah, I guess every time I think that this is a family film, there's a moment there like that would, that would make you go, well, maybe I'll cover their eyes. The Jamie Lee dancing scene is not a family film at all. That's a pretty chaste scene. I never think of this as a family movie. Ever. It's about a family. You might have a different reaction because you have children than I do. I would let children watch this movie easily. But for save one or two images. I would say I would let my teenagers watch this movie, but I wouldn't let my children watch this movie. It's a big difference. As an unsupervised child that watched lots of R-rated movies before they should, this felt like hardly the most challenging thing I experienced before 10. Fair enough. But yeah, I do feel like it's a hard-hitting movie when it wants to be. And that is, I don't know, I heard you guys say it makes it feel like two different films. I think it's kind of skillful, though. I do think it's cool that we can have these two films and trade back and forth in between them, even though I have a clear preference, even though I do feel like the subtle, romantic, family, sophisticated comedy stuff is surprisingly the thing that Arnold and Cameron are better at. Yes, agreed. Not only that, I think three minutes before that, a really important turn is the one that it'd be hard to come back from if she had made a different choice 
is that Helen has been coaxed to come to my safe house. She still believes she's going on a spy mission. When Bill Paxton starts telling her we need to sleep together so that, you know, they'll believe us when we get to Paris, she says no. It would be a different thing if she were actually into having an affair, but she makes the distinction clear. I'm here for the adventure. I'm not here for the sex. So... The kidnapping scene is a whole lot of fun, and it's the moment you start realizing Helen is more than just a housewife. When they're taking Helen out of Simon's trailer, and she knees Tom Arnold in the balls, and then bites Arnold Schwarzenegger's arm, before knowing anything, she is showing right there she is a tough woman, She's taking these professional spies who admittedly probably don't have their game faces on because they're expecting no resistance. But right away, you're starting to see this woman has metal. Yeah, it's not about sex. What The infidelity that's happened here is about not including your partner in, in your real life. You know, like authenticity is what we're really talking about. The joke is she's fallen in love with the man that Arnold really is, but has concealed from her. And if he had been honest early on, and again, I don't know what the stakes of that are. I don't know why he is lying to her and what she means to him. But if he had just said, hey, you've married a spy, she would have stood by him. And hell, she would have been into it. She wouldn't have had to go to greasy car salesmen. Yeah, even though when the helicopter comes blowing in, Simon falls and is between her legs and it looks like they're having sex. Yes, it is a very fine line to walk where you're not going to alienate audiences and just statistically speaking a lot of people have had to deal with infidelity and it's something some marriages can recover from and something some marriages can't and it would be really ballsy for this movie to go there if they were really dealing with infidelity they play it very safe by doing that moment of her saying, I'm not going to do this. And then in the interrogation scene, having her come out and very clearly say, I've never slept with anyone else. When Gid tells Harry, what did you expect? Helen is a flesh and blood woman. You're never there. When he just like stops all that, you know, funny reactions to all join the club, whatever. That's kind of like strangely stayed in my head for the past 30 years of like, what did you expect if you're not there? Right. And I got relationship advice from True Lies that has lasted me my, my entire life. From Tom Arnold. From Tom Arnold had wisdom to depart to you. So thank you, Tom Arnold and True Lies, for making me always aware that if you want a successful relationship, you have to be there with your family, with your partner. And this is a the more you know moment from now playing. I remember my reaction to the interrogation scene, and Jamie Lee Curtis is phenomenal in the scene, unbelievably great. It's wonderful to watch that kind of acting. But my reaction to her was I felt really bad for her, and I thought Arnold was being an asshole. Now, I understand what he's doing and why. I understand her reactions and all that kind of stuff, but what an asshole for making her go through all of this and have that kind of reaction and have and pull that stuff out of her because of his own shit. I mean, this is completely on him. And it's just, goodness gracious, like, I couldn't get past that, that I felt so bad for the character. And because of Jamie's performance, too, makes that come out. Oh, I think misogyny was labeled on this movie up and down. And I think it's because we see, yeah, Arnold, in many respects, manipulating his wife for much of the movie. What could get lost is the fact that she will have her revenge at the end. That she will get her own interrogation of him. 
and he will have to confess his true lies as well, is I think what makes it feel like fair game. If it were just, oh, spy makes housewife, you know, creates fake fantasy so that she'll love him again, we would say gross, gaslighter. That's not cool. But it's the second half of the movie where this character really will flourish. And I do feel like this is Jamie Lee Curtis's movie. And she's stuck alone in a room doing it. It's a one-woman show. And again, showing the toughness when she takes that stool and almost breaks through the one-way glass. Just, you gotta think that that room has housed people as big or bigger than Arnold. You know, super terrorists in that room have not stood up as well as Helen does in this moment. And to get her to go to the hotel room, which is supposed to be a big surprise, hey, it's me, everything's gonna be okay, and making her do the sexy dance, that's still manipulative. No, it, it would be gross. Again, I think we laugh because she's such a great comedian. I love that dance scene. I watched it twice. I rarely do I just like, I rewind usually to hear lines of dialogue or like, did I miss a plot detail? I just rewatched this scene again because I just enjoyed watching her find her inner libido in this moment. You know, like her taking off the clothes, realizing that Penny is so small, her hands instinctively go to cover her crotch and then like owning it. Like it's, she's just so amazing. The moment I love is when she's walking to the room and she realizes she's supposed to be a prostitute and gets that movie moment where you could just tear clothes apart and they look like they've been tailored that way the whole time. But she shortens the skirt and loses the ruffles, loses the sleeves, slicks back the hair. There's something about Helen here that's a needs to be unleashed. And this is the first moment of it. Pre-dance is her going with what an escort would look like, which was very different than when she was told from her house, dress sexy. That is the moment for me pre-dance that I just love the transformation. But what I like is during the dance, and it's perfect comic timing, she falls down <laughs> and it gets back up again. It's so good. I said nothing happened. So good. She's so and good it at it. It was so funny and it was so perfect. And so even though she's doing all this stuff, she's still Helen. She's still this clumsy woman. And there's this rumor going around that that was like a real outtake. And no, that was something. I think it came out of rehearsal, but that was planned. It was done several times and it was perfectly timed. And I do think this scene, again, I watched it side by side with La Total. And that's just uncomfortable for me because in, in the original, the wife is literally being asked to be a prostitute. There's no bug. There's no like you have a secret mission, all that. It's like you're going to sleep with this man and it's not funny. And the fact that it's her husband that's like jumping on her naked. Maybe it played differently in 1991, but I do think by making it a spy mission, again, it's not about a woman getting laid. It's about a woman feeling empowered to enjoy what has traditionally been James Bond men's role in the movies to have a spy adventure, to be an equal partner is her growth. And I think the changes that were made, even though this script largely follows the structure of the original, the changes that are made here for her really help me go with this moment a lot more. 
let's not forget what we're talking about is a French movie, and French have a very different attitude than prudish Americans when it comes to sex. I believe in the French version, you probably could have had the woman sleep with the fake spy and still recover from it at the end. They're usually a bit more open with those things. But when it comes to this scene where the dance gets interrupted, she beats him up with a telephone, and then in comes the Crimson Jihad. Huh? How did they know where they were? I mean, the mind boggles that the terrorists burst in at this moment, because I'm like, say none of this was happening. Say Helen had never met Simon, and Harry was just sitting at home with his wife and daughter. How did they follow him? Would they have raided his home at that point? How did they know he was at this hotel? It feels convenient. I hear that, but I, I truly am asking this question. Is that really a thing for you? Because I just feel like this movie is not about the whys and hows of this terrorist organization. Like, why they show up and what they're doing and all. They are the engine that allows this marriage to repair itself on screen. I'm here for that. It makes sense that they're blowing in in the exact moment that she realizes that the man that she has been called here to bug is actually her husband. I feel like this is absolutely right. That she learns about this deception as they're being hauled away with bags on their heads and smuggled off to Florida. She suddenly realizes her husband is a spy. To answer your question of does this really bother me? Yes, it really bothers me insofar as I feel the villains in this film are too thin. We talked about at the beginning, this is a James Bond film. No James Bond film would get away with this crappy a villain. He's not memorable. Well, wait, no, he doesn't have a feature like a bleeding eye or a, a clawed hand. I would go so far to say this has a James Bond homages, but mm -hmm. this is as close as we're going to get to a James Bond film at this time. But this is not a James Bond movie by any sense of the imagination. It certainly has a debt to James Bond movies. So I understand your point, but it's it's not really a James Bond movie. No, but this movie isn't even a good spy movie because the villain isn't a good villain. I don't need it. What I hear you saying that it has absence of, all movies have to make selective choices about what they're going to promote or not. I don't need this movie to have that. It has enough of the trappings for me to understand the world that they're in, but that its concerns are much more domestic. I just would have preferred if the domestic caused him to screw up. Because... He's doing bad things. We've got Tom Arnold calling him out. You're using all of these spy resources for personal gain. Mm-hmm. Yes. Felonies. If that act had somehow alerted Crimson Jihad to where they were or something, I think it would play stronger because there would be a consequence to his action and it would tie better into the villain instead of having the villain just come in. Instead, what we get is a good comedy. I love the scenes of Helen going, Harry, I'm sorry, this is my whole thing. Don't take him. This is me because she thinks she's the spy in this situation. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the one they want. <laughs> Her delusions. But on the other hand, Arnie makes a good point because... Gib and his other partner find out where Harry and Helen are because Harry bugged uh, Helen's purse, right? So mm -hmm. that's how the Omega team finds Arnold, but there's no indication on how Crimson Jihad found them in this hotel room. Yeah. I agree with you that if they went so far for the bag five minutes later, why didn't they do it here? Good point. Bravo for picking that up. I'm more with Stuart on this one that they came in at the perfect time to take this movie out of this portion and then to move on to the next half 
of the movie. There's an hour left at this point, and I could not believe we had an hour left. Obviously, I've seen this movie before, but they have a whole chunk of this movie now full of fun stuff, but it's just remarkable to me that there's an hour here. Remarkable and concerning is what I hear. I also hear, like, I wish it didn't have an hour. I told you what I think they should have cut, right? So it's really easy for me to know, because from all the decisions they're making from this point on, I'm agreeing with to tell this story. I always go back to Dead Man's Chest. Pirates of the Caribbean movie. I never go back to Dead Man's Chest, but okay. <laughs> For, as an example of, it's very apparent that 20 minutes on mm. that cannibal island, if they cut yeah. that out. I know, dear God. <laughs> that movie would be a clean, crisp two hours and a lot of fun from start to finish. If they just cut out that fun, terrific action scene and that cannibal island scene is full of lots of fun stuff. But if you cut out this horse chase then the movie doesn't seem like it's too long and doesn't feel like it's almost exhausting with what we're going to see the next hour of one thing after another after another. James Cameron does not know how to cut. I guess it comes down to taste. I agree with you, Brock. I don't need the extravagance. It was what James Cameron brought to this. It's the reason why this movie is so expensive, is he did not believe that American audiences would just want a marriage story. It has to have the spectacle in order to be an Arnold movie. And the fact that it's doing both. But you have plenty of spectacle in this last half of the movie. There's plenty of it when they have the torture scene and how Arnold gets out of that. That's not really spectacle, though. Again, all those moments feel like three people in a room. Spectacle is, you know, a horse jumping off the Marriott. But you have the scene when he's with the explosion above him under the water, the sequence at the end with the fighter jet, the bridge chase... There is plenty of big action scenes to come in this movie. So you're not saying cut all of them? No, what I'm saying is cut that middle one, even though I enjoy the hell out of it, and I think it's a really fun scene. If you cut that that little section, this movie plays and plays beautifully and does everything it needs to do. Cut it out or cut it down? Cut it out. Like I said earlier on this podcast, mm. if you cut that entire scene out... The movie might lose too much momentum if it doesn't have an action scene at that moment. I do think you need to ha pair the idea that every time he's trying to get home, the international stuff is pulling him back in. I understand your point. I just feel that if this movie were shorter, it'd be easier to swallow. I'm not disagreeing with that. I would have preferred two hours. Mm-hmm. Well, here's what I would fear. If you were to hand this to editors, that what they would be likely to trim is not the action stuff but like that great interrogation scene like they're like oh she's talking into a mirror for too long we need less of that this sequence of her doing the seduction badly it's funny but we need less of that that's what i fear would happen i think while this movie is overblown what impresses me is that it's overblown with the domestic stuff that i would expect all of the big action, I wouldn't expect all the intimate interaction between husband and wife. Let me come down the middle and say it could have been a lot shorter than it was. It could have been just the bathroom stuff. It could have been just half the horse stuff. It really is a long sequence. And yeah, this whole Helen finds out Harry's a spy deal comes around the 90 minute mark. It needs to come in at the one hour mark. All of this that we're talking about, basically the bloat. I just associate with this director. James Cameron bloats his movies to the point that it takes away from the enjoyability across the board. It gets worse later in his career. You think Titanic should have been 90 minutes? I think Titanic could have definitely lost a half an hour. 
And I like Titanic better than I like this. So I just think that he is the Stephen King of filmmaking. He doesn't know how to keep it short. He doesn't want to keep it short. He wants everything to be gone with the wind length epics. And that's fine. That's his style. I don't jive to it. And that's why I'm cool on James Cameron as a director. You're cool on James Cameron? You don't love his movies? Yeah. No, I don't think I love one of his movies. You don't love The Terminator? The first one is better than the second one. I loved the second one when I was in high school. You don't love Aliens? No, I'm cool on it. Wow. Like daggers. I just rewatched Titanic, and I'm really glad it was three hours. I recently rewatched The Terminator, and that movie is an hour and 47 minutes. And I couldn't believe it was only an hour and 47 minutes. And that movie just moves and moves and moves. Probably my favorite Cameron film and probably his shortest. Right. And it builds and builds and builds. Other than Piranha 2. I have not seen Piranha 2. Yeah. I, as a James Cameron fan, I've actually kept it out of my life. Right. So anyway, the point I'm trying to make is I do agree that in Titanic's case, though, I think it was fine. I Yeah, I feel like you're bringing a lot of baggage of you really didn't like Avatar. And I get that. No, I'm serious, though. I feel this way about Terminator 2. Whenever I sit down to watch Terminator 2, I have to do this big, <sighs> because that movie is overblown. Really? What? Oh, yeah. And then I watch it and I love it, but I just feel like that movie is too bloated. I, I had these feelings pre-Avatar, but I certainly think Avatar is a nice epitome Exhibit A, your honor, but it's something I felt for a while and I feel on this film. Well, here's what I would say. I'll meet you at this point. They are longer than your average action movies. And what it asks of you, because I believe he's so big on adrenaline, is it's hard to take that for so long. Watching Aliens, I remember some critics giving that movie a negative review because they thought it was unfair to punish the audience to have them that scared for that long. He asked a lot of you. What's weird about this movie is it's just kind of genial. Like, I don't feel adrenaline in this. I Even in the big action scenes, they're kind of cute. They're whimsical. They're funny. They're not the, oh my God, James Cameron, I'm grabbing my armchair and can't let go. But now we're into my favorite portion of the film, which is when Helen is being introduced to the spy characters that we've seen Harry with earlier. Helen meeting Juno and Juno realizing, oh, this is really your wife. Helen insisting on it. Like, look, if I'm not your wife, why do I have this locket? Yeah, the two women, the women that he should be with, right? And then the one that's left at home. It is interesting that they get to meet and ultimately, I wouldn't quite classify that Helen kills her or vanquishes her, but she's the one that Harry lifts out of the limo. Right. Helen tries to beat the crap out of her too. That's kind of fun later on. So this last hour, the first part in the terrorist camp. The true serum, Helen gets the moment that you mentioned, are we going to die? Yep. And to me, this feels as raw, because Arnold's not as good as an actor, it doesn't land as heavy, but this is character-wise, as raw and probing as when she was on the stool at the mirror. This is the reverse of that, where she gets to stick him back for the way he manipulated her. And he says, uh, yeah, I killed people, but they were all bad. She also says, I married Rambo, which is pretty funny for her to say, considering Stallone is Schwarzenegger. And Cameron wrote Rambo, too, FYI. But I think my favorite joke in the entire sequence is the low battery bit. <laughs> yeah. Terrorists, when the guy mm -hmm. 
just a brilliant little thing and, and how the guy is sweating and doesn't want to tell the other terrorists that it, that whole bit, it plays a little bit long, but my goodness, what a fun little bit. And they take the time to make those little moments in here. Again, we're talking about bloat, but if you cut that kind of thing out, I would be upset. It kind of adds a lot of color to it and a lot of fun. It's why you can't build up the bad guy either, because he is a joke. And again, that might be really weird post 9-11 to think that we're laughing off terrorist attacks on American soil. But in 1994, even after the first World Trade Center, there were people that were alarmed by it, by the shrugging. But I do think it was easier for more people to go along with the fantasy and not care about the politics. Yeah, what it gets down to for me is this movie is a comedy, and so that's why it's easier for me to say cut some of the action, because when this movie's working best, I'm laughing. I'm laughing at Arnold on the truth serum. I'm laughing at Arnold telling the torturer, I'm going to lose you as a human shield, and then throw this knife at that guy, and then break your neck. And because he's on truth serum, you know, he's not lying about any of this. I just, when this movie has me laughing, this movie has me happy. Yeah, and for me, that is something new. I know Arnold did comedies. I think I did see Twins and just hated it. I don't remember it. I didn't see any of the others. Junior, Jingle All the Way, Kindergarten Cop, not touching it. Kindergarten Cop is one we might have, should have included, because there's a good bit of action and comedy in that one, and it's really, really good. It's really, really good? That's my memory. Really, really good. Batman and Robin tells me I don't want to see Arnold be funny, and this movie tells me I do. But Kindergarten Cop would be something you would think, oh, my family can go see that. And we talked earlier how you guys thought this was a family movie. There are definitely scenes in Kindergarten Cop where they pushed all the funny antics with the kids in the commercials, but the action scenes in that are kind of brutal for little kids to see. To be determined, I know there's a sequel with Dolph, and I love covering Dolph, so maybe one day we'll work it in. It ain't in this retrospective. We're looking at the purely action Arnold, and this one, again, it's showing me Arnold has range. I don't say that ever, but this movie shows me he could be funny and he can be tough. Yeah, you got to credit the director quite a bit because they do a last action hero gag here that we'll just say last action hero didn't work for people. This movie did. But when you see Jamie Lee Curtis picking up the Uzi and she drops it down a flight of stairs during this escape and it keeps firing and each stare and the bullets just happen to magically hit all the terrorists. That's the exact same gag as when Arnold electrocuted the corpse in Last Action Hero when that corpse started randomly shooting all over the place and killing the terrorists. But it works better here. And you say Last Action Hero, I say Jar Jar Binks. I did not enjoy the Uzi. Um, that joke has been used too many times for me to enjoy it anymore. Oh yeah, Jar Jar did do it too. Oh, yeah, it's Jar Jar's entire end of the movie, right? I mean, give me a break. It's the, the, the killing people by mistake. It's just Jar Jar all the way. And I just, I don't like that kind of gag. But I do like that she couldn't shoot the gun, that she wasn't expecting the power of the weapon. She never fired a weapon like that before. That's realistic in this kind of movie. It's kind of a nice little bit of realism in, a, in an over-the-top kind of movie. Yeah, and it was the climax of the French film. That's pretty much where the French film ends, with the wife dropping the gun to the husband and it killing all the people he needed to kill before it reached him. And that was pretty much it. We're done. It's like a football stadium that's going to be blown up, and they're done, and there was no daughter, there was no nukes, there was nothing to go beyond it. 
you know, they jumped immediately to the fact that they would go on to a new mission together. That was keeping it concise. Here, we do have a whole lot more. An incredible seven-mile bridge fight sequence. I, I don't think you should cut this. I, again, I think Cameron's instinct to make this big is right. No, no one's saying you should cut this. I haven't said one time, cut anything from this second half of the movie. What I'm talking about was cutting earlier in the movie because they do mention... You know, as much as we can't even abide the thought of John McClane flying a fighter jet in a Die Hard movie, uh, we completely go with Harry Trasker knowing how to fly a fighter jet in this movie because they go out of their way to prove that, oh, you haven't flown one of these in 10 years. They put plenty of uh, things in there to make it realistic enough that he knows how to fly that kind of amazing plane. Okay, let me again split the difference here. I love this bridge chase that's a huge bridge coming from the florida keys it's just gorgeously shot i can never say that about cameron's work i mean it cameron makes gorgeous looking films and the cinematographer he's got here is shooting this well it's exciting shooting out the bridge the limo on autopilot and it's giving Helen something to do as Helen and Juno are fighting in the limo. Helen is an active participant, but yet it's also Helen has to literally take that leap to be saved by her husband. She has to leap out of a moving car to be grabbed and saved. It's an amazing scene. It's a perfect climax of this film. But stop there. <laughs> I do not need climax two with Arnold in the jet. Yeah, saving the daughter does feel like an unnecessary extension because the daughter wasn't really playing into the dynamics that much. I love the fighter jet scene. I love the gags in it. I like the special effects in it. I agree with you. Is It's not necessary. You already had a climax. I also love the stunt of the man pulling the woman out of the car. As far as I can tell, it's a real stunt, and that's remarkable from an, a transfer f uh, from a car to a helicopter. It is amazing. Some of that's Jamie Lee. I mean, when she's dangling there, that's some Tom Cruise shit, you know? <laughs> so you're, what you're saying is if they cut the daughter out completely, you wouldn't need this at all because you have this setup with early that – so now he's patched things up with his wife – because he has the bad relationship with his daughter, they need to resolve that as well, which is what this action scene does. So if they cut the daughter out completely, they can end the movie on the bridge. Mm-hmm. But here's where I actually actively dislike the Harrier stuff at the end. Helen's not a part of it. This whole movie has been bringing them together. The fight on the bridge is them working together. He's saving her, but she's not a damsel in distress. They do it right. Helen and Harry come together at that moment. It is truly the best climax of this film. And then literally he leaves Helen behind to hop in this jet and go off and have an Arnold climax of his own. Right. And I don't hear you advocating because one fix to this would be, well, she could hop in the jet with him. That would be a terrible mistake. If she suddenly were Rambet, I really think that that would be too far as well. The fact that she didn't know how to use the gun, the fact that she's still a housewife and wouldn't know how to fly a plane, wouldn't be comfortable doing that. The movie would be better off not having this climax than making her a part of this climax. Yeah, or... There's other ways to handle that, but the daughter has not been a big enough part of this movie to where she deserves this ending. Helen deserves this kind of an ending. 
I mean, it is a spectacle. And and one other thing that this improved, a criticism, I think, that was being thrown, is that this movie made Arabs look evil, ridiculous, cartoonish. It gives Faisal, the other guy in the van, we haven't talked very much about Grant Hesloff was the techie who was using the data to find out the financial connections. He's the guy that goes in pretending to be part of a TV crew that sort of helps out here when the daughter winds up dangling from a crane. It should be said, Grant Hesloff, of course, Oscar-winning Grant Hesloff. He's George Clooney's business partner. Mm-hmm. Writer, yep. Yeah, has gone on to, I would say, bigger things for himself in this movie. Right, yes, more behind the scenes than on screen for him. Uh, and bravo to him. But yes, I agree with you both. If they stopped the movie with the scene on the bridge and then end the movie with the button scene, it would have been fun. But I do really enjoy this Harrier jet scene. I really do like the way he kills a terrorist at the end the, through the building with the missile and he's, his backpack is stuck there. There's ways you could have done it. If the climax wasn't taking place so far away from the bridge, you know, I could have seen Helen in the... I need to help my daughter phase, whereas Arnold's in the I need to fight off the terrorists phase. There's a way you could have done that, but it's still an elongation when we have reached our emotional peak of this film and Cameron is still deciding to spend a crap ton of money on brand new military jets. The Harriers were pretty damn new at this point, the ones that can just take off vertically. They were pretty new tech. And yet, here it is in a James Cameron film shooting up downtown Miami. Right. Mm -hmm. I think it's fun silliness. Would a 12-year-old girl climb out on a crane like that to avoid a terrorist? I don't know. Would she be okay holding on to a cockpit of a broken Harrier jet? I don't think so. Yes. Arnold has an ego. He's not going to let Jamie Lee Curtis co-share the climax, right? He's got to have the, the one to fire the final missile. It's a little much, but Arnold gets one Arnold line. You're fired. I like the action, don't get me wrong, and I remember it on the big, big screen. And just being blown away because James Cameron can do spectacle like nobody else. He can do these action scenes and make them look completely real, even though there's miniature work and there's CGI and there's every trick in the book going together. He makes it look amazing. Arnold behind the plane is badass, so if you just want badassery, you're getting it. And he hasn't had a one-liner this movie. I didn't even realize it till he said you're fired, but he had not gone into that area of Arnoldness. This is his moment. I think a lot of audiences, this could be their favorite part of it. But when the part I've enjoyed of the movie most, and let it be stated, I've enjoyed it a lot is the marriage stuff. This just feels like an extra climax unnecessary. Well, they do get back to that. There's an epilogue. But before we leave this moment, I do want to say, as far as Dana was concerned, her dad was a computer software salesman, right? She doesn't seem to have any surprise about seeing him in this jet or having, you know, lack of confidence that he might not tip her off. There's like a half second and then it's like, okay, you're Arnold and of course you can save me. If my dad came to rescue me in a Harrier jet, I would not jump on the Harrier <laughs> jet. That's all I got to say. <laughs> 
at no point did these people wonder. I mean, he keeps saying, oh, he forgot something at the office. Shouldn't he be spending like six hours a day just lifting to keep that physique as a computer salesman? I've worked with computer salesmen. I've known some that are jacked, but none that are Arnold. Well, I mean, that's part of the joke, right? Is that we should all have suspected this man is not how he presents himself. But the epilogue is that he is now going to present his wife as a co-partner. And they do get back. It's the very same scene as the opener, only this time she's saying some of the lines. They're going to be the ones doing the tango instead of Tia Carrera. And kind of stupidly, they bring Simon back as a waiter that they can threaten. Right. And how is he in Switzerland? I don't know. Yeah, that seemed dumb. Yeah, but I do love that Tom Arnold closes out the movie with, you know, we don't have time to tango. Hey, guys, constantly just talks and talks and talks. And I don't know how if it was written or he just improved all that. But I love how it keeps on going when the, as the credits start going, Tom Arnold still goes too. feel his frustration with it. And they finally give him he gets the last line of the movie it was just fun. I was so glad I watched the whole tango just so I could get that little stinger with Tom Arnold being like, next time you guys stay in the van. Well, they are on a mission and like they shouldn't be doing this. But again, I think that's the whole movie's operation. You thought you were coming to watch the bad guy be targeted. But in fact, it's about these two tangoing. It shouldn't be one year later. It should be two years later. But that's okay. I don't care. It's supposed to be fun and we should just go with it. So I'm pretty sure I think I know where we're going to go with it from here. But let's just double check. Stuart, Arnie, do you recommend True Lies? Stuart. I debated if it was Arnold's best movie. I I ended up saying no to that. I suspect it might be his best comedy. I'm uneducated. I'm uninformed on that. But I will, I'll just say it this way. It's easily a better demonstration of his range of what he wanted to be as both an icon of action movies and family films than what we saw last week with Last Action Hero. This is a really unique entry in the filmography of Arnold and James Cameron in that what surprises me, they don't usually do subtle, I guess is what I would say. And this movie is sophisticated. It's light on its feet. It's not any of the adrenaline and blood spatter that I associate with them. The Middle Eastern politics and the R rating, they have an amazing way of soft-selling it. In a way that, again, I feel comfortable saying that you could probably bring most audiences to this. And while there will be moments of shock, I feel like mostly it is about family values and connection and things that are going to be pleasing for a wide audience beyond Arnold's action fan base. It's exactly what he wanted to accomplish, and I think he does it here. But in the end, I'm going to say it's Jamie Lee Curtis's movie. Despite all the compliments I can give Arnold here, at the end of the day, what I remember about this movie back then and now is watching mousy housewife Helen transform and become as cool and an equal as Arnold in the spy game. I truly think she's the gift to this movie. I don't know what this movie would have been with another actress or who could have matched her, frankly. And even Tom Arnold, goddamn, you know, when I'm giving Tom Arnold compliments, you know they did something right, because I don't think that's ever happened. This movie uses its components well. It's smart. It's overlong. I don't disagree with you on that. But I think sophisticated comedies, many have tried. I think, you know, I think about that Brad Pitt, Angelina Jolie movie where they were spies that tried to kill each other. Ashton Kutcher and somebody tried to do that. Killers. 
didn't Reese Witherspoon date two spies? Like, they've tried to do this for a hard action movie and a romantic comedy. And this one is really good at both. And so I'm going to say solid recommend. It may be a mild disappointment in that it's not the adrenaline Arnold movie you think you want. But he gives you something different that I think many people will enjoy. Arnie. Yeah, I know I may have groused a little bit about this movie as we went through, and that's because I'm with two co-hosts who were very, very positive, and I feel this movie isn't worthy of overpraise. <laughs> it's not a perfect movie. But let's get it straight. It's a very solid recommend. It's a movie I very much enjoyed rewatching. It's just when you're analyzing a film, and I'm trying to decide between is it good or is it great... It does things that keep it in the really good category and out of the great category. Where it could have been great is if the villains had been a bit more defined. If we just kept talking about Malik in this podcast, I can't remember his name and I put it in the plot summary, the villain's actual villain name. There's just so little memorable about the Crimson Jihad. And, as I've mentioned, there are two tremendous action scenes, one with a horse and one with a Harrier jet. They're really cool to watch. They make the movie a bit too long and they don't service the characters. They just service action for action's sake. But it's still a really solid recommend. I still really like this movie. And yeah, it's probably the best movie of Arnold's we've reviewed so far in this little Arnold streak we're doing. Yeah, I agree with that. It's certainly the strongest entry so far. I do like this movie a lot. Uh, I do have some problems with it, which I've expressed on this podcast already. I love the performances here, though. So what's worthwhile to come back to after all these years, not only were the action scenes, which I vividly remember, so they really were enough for me to remember all these years later, because I don't think I've seen this movie since it came out on DVD or VHS, I should probably say more accurately, in the 90s after seeing it that one time in the theater. It's been a solid 25 years since I've seen it, and I still remember these action scenes very well. I agree, Arnold, the best we've seen him, Jamie Lee is really, really good, and Tom Arnold. Uh, James Cameron deserves all the credit in the world. The action scenes are fun. So yeah, I absolutely recommend this movie, but I do not think it's a greatest movie ever kind of movie. And if it was, I would have revisited it much more. I have seen Terminator 2 countless times. This one, I like it, but I have no compulsion to watch it again. So that says something. And that's because probably the flaws we talked about are stronger than maybe some people realize. So, yeah, absolutely recommend. Yeah, I mean, I, let's be clear. T2 is Arnold and James Cameron working in their forte, right? This is them doing something a little bit different and showing they have other dimension. That's what I appreciate about it. But it's not them at their best. It's just them showing they're more than T2. I mean, both of them usually get associated with science fiction. I think that's why this one feels weird. It's like, normally, Cameron is like the sci-fi guy, but this and Titanic are the diversions from that. Well, again, as I teased earlier, they were going to come back to this. There was a script, there was a plan, and in the early 2000s, after Titanic was done, Titanic took James Cameron quite a while to film and be done with, and after that... Cameron turned his sights on returning to True Lies. And then, Stuart, as you alluded to, 9-11 made it where, in James Cameron's words, 
terrorism just isn't funny anymore. And so they just kind of gave up on this, and now I imagine that ship has sailed as Arnold is well, well past his prime. I also heard when I was at Fox, they were considering TV series. And my guess is Cameron just wouldn't let them do that. But you could imagine how you could fashion some kind of half of it will feel like family ties and half of it will feel like alias. You know, like you could do that on an hour long format. That might have been kind of fun to do. Reinvent it, obviously, with none of these actors. So there was an unofficial sequel that I learned about called The Kid and I. And the plot of this movie is the kid who has cerebral palsy has a very rich father and he pays the star of True Lies to make a sequel with the kid himself who has cerebral palsy in the Arnold Schwarzenegger role and Tom Arnold, who was in this movie. Oh, he's the star they get back. I thought you were going to tell me Arnold was the one they hired. I am, because it's based on a real story. There's a billionaire who's a neighbor of Arnold Schwarzenegger's, and since he's so rich, they had this young man who was the same kid who's in the movie with Tom Arnold about it. They basically did that. They filmed the movie for this kid, with this kid, only for this kid, and spent like Mm. a million bucks on it. And so hearing the story, Tom Arnold made it into a movie that all the profits went to the United Cerebral Palsy Foundation. Okay, kind of like a Make-A-Wish movie. Kind of like that, but it's really, Tom Arnold is very, very well in this movie. He plays a version of Elva Dunn, his luck actor, uh, doesn't want to do this movie. He's planning suicide. He's basically playing himself, but with a different name. And Linda Hamilton is in it. Henry Winkler is in it. Joe Mantegna plays the billionaire. And the kid, whose name is, I think, Eric Gores, who has cerebral palsy, is in this movie. And at the very, very end of the movie, as a character redemption for this character Tom Arnold is playing, Jamie Lee Curtis and Arnold Schwarzenegger show up. At this point, Arnold Schwarzenegger is the governor. And they don't use their names. And it kind of implies that maybe he's hallucinating that they're there. But mm-hmm. he comes to peace with... He's no longer a big shot. And Jamie and Arnold are, you know, they make a joke about you going to say, I'll be back. I'm not going to say that. It's, it's really, they're basically playing themselves, but it's really kind of nice to see them there and helping their friend Tom Arnold out for a quick moment based on the history of this thing. So it's called The Kid and I, and a true lies is hard to find. To find a copy of The Kid and I <laughs> was so difficult, so, so hard. But luckily I found it. I'm not advising you all watch it. It's really not necessary. It's a little schmaltzy at times, but it's, an unofficial sequel to True Lies. Hmm. Interesting. Well, I, I guess this movie does have more of a reputation than it feels like. I, again, it feels small on the resumes of both of the star and the director. But uh, we're going to keep going down Arnold's resume and seeing him get smaller, I believe. I have not seen Eraser, but it did erase some of the zeros on his paycheck afterwards. It isn't the box office hit this movie and, and many of the earlier ones were. I'm looking forward to revisiting that. I have not seen that movie since seeing it in theaters in 1996. So I do remember Vanessa Williams was the lead actress in that. So if Arnold thought Jamie Lee Curtis was not the right person for this movie, (laughs) how did that go down? I'm looking forward to doing some research on that and how he came to Vanessa Williams being the lead in his movie with him. So we'll find out when we review Eraser in our next podcast. And in the meantime, one last note, there's still a couple days left to get in on our contest where you can win a signed copy of Now Playing's first book, Underrated Movies. We recommend 125 movie reviews of movies that either didn't get the love they deserved, didn't get the audience they deserved. We finally have the book out in print, shipping out, and thanks to listener Kyle Smith, we have an autographed copy to give away. These autographed copies are... 
limited to just those who pre-ordered and kickstarted, so you're not going to find any more signed by all four of us, but here's a chance to get one. If you haven't gotten the book and just would like to read the book, you can order that at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash book. But if you want to try to win this autographed copy, sign up for our In Focus newsletter to get the instructions on how to do that and join our Facebook group. And the more of those actions you do, the more entries you have to win. And the contest ends this Friday. So good luck. And we have a second giveaway going on. While the one for the book is coming to a close, we have one where you can win a copy of the new Fletch film, John Hamm in Confess Fletch. Thanks to our friends at Paramount, we have five digital codes for that movie that we're going to be giving away. And I'll reveal as we announce this contest, we will be doing a Fletch retrospective series starting in just a few weeks. Got to get through the Arnold stuff first, but we're going to be reviewing both Chevy Chase films. And then, yeah, it took a few decades, but Fletch is back with this John Hamm film. And if you want to win one of the digital codes to this new comedy, head to our Facebook page facebook.com forward slash now playing podcast and our pinned post is going to be the entry information to the contest you can also get this information from our now playing in focus newsletter that you can sign up to at nowplayingpodcast.com or our facebook group or twitter feed we're going to be announcing the winners of this giveaway on september 26th great and if you like underrated movies maybe this friday we're covering one it's an underseen film by johnny depp and roman polanski made right at the turn of the millennium it's kind of like a horror movie to get us in the mood for halloween it's kind of a comedy too but we can talk about that this friday the ninth gate that is available for monthly patrons of ten dollars or more And speaking of our patron program, I do want to give a shout out to some of our most dedicated supporters. We've got Chris Roberts, Ol Horvie, Chris Harris, Gerard Lavelle, Jeremy Conrad, Rob Carter, Timothy Graham, Simon Brennan. Thank you so much, guys. Okay, don't forget now about Alejandro Avia, Tom Ward, Sean Burgess. Jay Klein 88 Scott. Is that just Scott? Just Scott. Just Scott. These okay. are, you know, on Podbean. It's Scott. We, okay. we know Scott. I think we all know Scott. <laughs> Come it's on, Scott. Scotty. Scotty. <laughs> May not be the patron we are championing. But anyway, yeah, Scott, Matty B, toward 1971. Uh, T. Durden 182, which is obviously a reference to Fight Club, right? Pete. There's a Pete and Scott must hang out. Pete. Seamus Finlay's son, Human Error, and J Music 418. Thank you all so much for being patrons of Now Playing. You can sign up on our Patreon or at nowplayingpatron.com. I have not seen that one yet, and I'm looking forward to watching that and listening to you guys talk about it on the show. That's this Friday, and next Tuesday with Eraser, we'll be back. Thanks for everything, Harry. It wasn't bad while it lasted. Thank you for listening to this Now Playing Podcast movie review. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Magnificent, isn't it? Yes, quite. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another new movie review podcast. I'll return when this has taken effect. Then we'll talk. 
I'm looking forward to it. Want more reviews like this one? In the archive section of NowPlayingPodcast.com, you'll find more than 1,000 in-depth movie reviews from our panel of hosts. Including The Fast and the Furious, Mission Impossible, Star Trek, Terminator, Predator, and many more at NowPlayingPodcast.com. Let's face it, Harry. The vet gets him wet. Support from listeners like you keeps Now Playing Podcast on the air. You can donate directly at NowPlayingPodcast.com. If not for me, do it for your country. And you can join our crowdfunding campaign for early access to new episodes, exclusive reviews, and bonus reviews. You just saved my life. Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. I thought this looked like your work. Associate produced by Jason Latham. Oh, we still got to kill him. I mean, that's a given. Now Playing is edited by Heath and Arnie. We do not tolerate mistakes. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the views of Venganza Media Incorporated. Are we going to die? Yep. Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with, and this podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by any entity that created the film analyzed herein. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of their respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review and no infringement is intended. Get lost, dipshit. Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of and may not be used without the express written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. Well, you see, this is the problem with terrorists. They're really inconsiderate when it comes to people's schedules. Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2022. And no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. Kids, 10 seconds of joy, 30 years of misery. So thank you, Tom Arnold and True Lies, for making me always aware that if you want a successful relationship, you have to be there with your family, with your partner. All right, guys, I got to go now. Um, I've been recording a little too much. <laughs> yeah. yeah, as we're recording too much with our, with our families. And he seems so fluid. He's doing it so effortless, effortlessly. And at the same time, He's still doing all the Arnold stuff we want him to do. Can you say he's doing it effortlessly, please? I, no, I can't, Arnie. I try. I was. It wasn't effortless. It wasn't effortless. <laughs> he was doing it so effortless. He was doing it so easily. I was enjoying it the entire time. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.